Welcome back to the Brendan Option. I'm Father Gerard Quirk, joined here at a social distance with Father Brendan Kilcoyne, coming to you today, as always, from the Presbytery here in Westport, Mayo. How are you, Father Brendan? Very well, Gerard, thank you. How are you doing these days with all this pandemic well, around us? And uh, Perfectly well. I'm, a, I'm a, an eremitical soul. <laughs> so I'm pottering away. I have my bees. I have, I have my garden. Um, I'm doing a, a master's part-time in, mm-hmm. in biblical studies, and I'm sort of desperately trying to get essays finished and that kind of thing. So I think this is one of the things that people are afraid to say these days, that they're actually enjoying this time. Yeah. You know, I know there's chaos around, but as Dermot Kennedy says, what there can be chaos and art. And oh, no, absolutely. A lot absolutely. of good things happening as well. Absolutely. It's very good. On that note, so where are you leading us today? Well, I thought I'd begin with a gloomy Dane. Can you handle a gloomy Dane? In yeah. the summer weather, Dane yeah. as in Danish, as in from Denmark. You know, all the good butter and, and didn't they? the, the uh, politically correct politics and all the rest of it. Kierkegaard, who certainly, whatever else you can say about him, was not politically correct. <laughs> Søren Kierkegaard. Uh, the quotation's a bit long, but if you bear with me, and, and ju- just, the guy's well worth listening to. Well worth listening to. If there were no eternal consciousness in a man, if at the foundation of all there lay only a wildly seething power which writhing with obscure passions produced everything that is great and everything that is insignificant, if a bottomless void never satiated lay hidden beneath all, what then would life be but despair? If such were the case, if there were no sacred bond which united mankind, if one generation arose after another like the leafage in the forest, if the one generation replaced the other like the song of birds in the forest, If the human race passed through the world as a ship goes through the sea like the wind through the desert, a thoughtless and fruitless activity, if an eternal oblivion were always lurking hungrily for its prey and there was no power strong enough to wrest it from its maw, how empty then and comfortless life would be. But therefore it is not thus. But as God created man and woman, so too he fashioned the hero and the poet or orator. Wow. Now, what I like about it is, he's a great ironist in some ways, what I like about it is, he's not saying there's despair, but he paints despair in such a leisurely and loving manner that he frightens you with it. Mm. And it is a possibility. The beast is there. The possibility of oblivion, the possibility of pointlessness, the possibility of futility, right? It is there, and it is, in, it is against that that the figure of the hero is set. And the poet or orator who celebrates the hero. And how can you celebrate a hero if the hero has nothing to conquer, to traverse? If there is no dark and terrifying ocean to cross? What's there to sing about in the words of Virgil? Uh, arms and the man. This is, this is what we sing of. And the Gospels are a mighty tribute to the earth, to the mighty deed of God in our redemption when he walked among men. The ultimate hero, mm. the ultimate kuchal, the perfect hero who is also himself the sacrifice, the one in perfect sacrifice. So Kierkegaard terrifies us at great length with the, with the void, with the oblivion. And against that then he brings man and woman, hero, poet and orator. And he's sincere about that as well. But the two are there, the two sides. And you remember in previous talks we talked about how, you know, life is essentially liminal. We're living on the edge of things. Literally on the edge of things. I mean, the Latin root of the word reality, it has its root in res, doesn't it? The Latin word for a thing. So reality is thinginess. It's thinginess, mm-hmm. right? So, so we're on the edge of thinginess, of thingy and not thingy. We, we are literally looking into the minus range of numbers. We are looking into the maw, into the deep, into the beyond. But who can live like that? And so... Routine and order and predictability 
We build these things. We're natural nest builders. We build a home for ourselves. We build a tomorrow for ourselves. We convince ourselves that we control tomorrow and we don't control anything really of significance. Yeah. And Kierkegaard is trying to get us to look at that. He was stifled by the polite bourgeois Lutheran middle-class piety of his day. He was stifled by it when he looked at, the, at the, the sombre and magnificent drama at the heart of Christianity. Whether you believe it or not, the figure of the crucified Christ is, is it, artistically, aesthetically, philosophically, theologically, it would be difficult to come up with anything more perfect than the crucified innocent. Wow. The man or woman, the, as they'd say in, in the west of Ireland, the decent old skin, <laughs> the decent man. Uh, you know, Orwell celebrated the ordinary man. It's just the ordinary man who liked his pint. The pint, as, as we say in Ireland, the pint of porter man. The sound man. Yes, the sound man. Sure, what did he ever do to anybody? <laughs> what did he ever do to anybody? And yet he's on the cross. He gets old. He gets cancer. He loses his money. He has an accident. You see? Mm -hmm. All the time we're on the edge. We're on the edge. But we learn not to look down. We stop looking down. Now, okay, I said in earlier talks that one of the most dangerous things you can do is break away from tradition. Now I'm going to say to you here that one of the most dangerous things you can truck with is tradition. <laughs> you can't live with it, like family, and you can't live without it. Because tradition can stifle. Tradition can satiate. But at your core, there is, there is an appetite that nothing can satiate but God, to paraphrase Augustine badly. Nothing can satiate but God at your core. So if you're going to plaster over, if you're going to try to fix this gaping hole into eternity with a, with, with a spit and Kleenex, okay, if you're going to just try to put some pathetic cover over this, mm -hmm. What, th that is incredibly dangerous. It's dangerous psychologically, it's dangerous spiritually, it's dangerous in every way. What do you think some of the dangerous traditions that we're holding, that we're keeping still now? Well, see, we're, we're, hold, we're holding on to the, to the, to the tattered shreds of our, of our former finery. And, 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 and we just keep going. We just keep going. I tell you what we, we remind me of sometimes. The Dancing Bear and Cormac McCarthy's grim, dark novel. Have you come across McCarthy? You've mentioned him before, yeah. Oh, McCarthy. <laughs> yeah, read McCarthy, but don't read too much of him at a time, and, and you may need a bit of a stiff drink. Or if you're not a drinker, I don't know, something, something equally refreshing at the end of it. He's no joke. He's still alive, contemporary American writer. He's got a small but devoted following. And some of his books have been made into films. Uh, no Country for Old Men, The Road, Cormac. Cormac Is he still alive? He is, yeah. yeah. As far as I know, um, he has a novel called *Blood Meridian*, and in it there, this this—it's only a tiny little vignette in it. There's this group of drunk—it's a very grim look at the at the West. There's this group of drunken cowboys in a saloon. McCarthy's obsessed with borders. A lot of his novels are set on the Texas-Mexican border because everything is blurred on borders. There's seepage on both sides. Very interesting places, borders, right? The the, the marchlands. Mm. And um, they're, they're this group of, of cowboys in a saloon, drunken cowboys, and the, the, the great attraction in the saloon, which was a cruel thing that you saw at fairs in the 19th century, was a dancing bear, a bear that was chained to the wall and had been taught through punishment and reward to dance. So the big bear was shamble a dance, and there was a, pia a piano, and a tune was being played on the piano, and the bear would dance to the tune. And this was an attraction in the saloon. And as the cowboys got drunker, they started shooting at the bear. And the bear was upset, but it had learned that if it danced, everything was all right. So it kept dancing. And then the cowboys started to shoot at the bear, and they missed him, and then they winged him. And the bear was distressed, but he danced harder. And then finally, they, they shot him right in the torso. And the bear at this stage was in huge distress, and his breaths coming in huge gasps. But he had learned, as long as you keep dancing, it'll be all right. And if you don't, they'll punish you. So he keeps dancing, even as the blood is pouring out of him and he's gradually dying. And he keeps dancing. And that's us. <laughs> that's us. Wow. 
You see, as long as we have these first communions with this big crowd at it, all of them talking in the church as if there were no real presence. I, I've heard a lot of priests say it's one of them. It's actually in many ways one of the most depressing things you can be at. And it should be a joyous occasion because of the lack of faith being shown by so many people. Because they don't have faith. And that's fair enough. If you don't, you don't. Mm -hmm. It's unfortunate, but if you don't, you don't. We have to remember there may be all sorts of reasons for that. And the church has played its part. The, I should say, you know, the priests and, and present and past leadership of the church has played its part in terms of the abuse stuff and that kind of thing. So, fine. But, but if you don't, you don't. If you don't have faith, if you lost your faith, you need to name it. It needs to be named. You can't paper over the wound. It'll get infected. It's bad enough as it is. Yeah. You're going to make it worse. It'll get infected and it will spiritually kill you. So what are you doing there? What, what are you doing telling, what are you doing letting the school tell your kid these stories? Richard Dawson, the, uh, Professor Dawson, the, the, the atheist, has said that bringing up a child as a Catholic, or indeed in any other religion, is a form of child abuse. And, and you can see his point from his point of view, in that he thinks it's a load of rubbish and you're teaching the child this load of rubbish. But if you don't believe it, should you be teaching that to your child? In conscience. So you go to heaven for, I, I, I don't know, let's say, well, what you're doing will send us all to hell. Mm. You know? And I'm not threatening hell on anyone. I'm just saying, this is really dangerous what you're at. And then again, a confirmation, the same thing again. And the church goes along with it because, let me tell you the truth, we're terrified of the reality we're in. And we'll do anything to pretend it hasn't happened. And you can dress that up how you want. And we've all done it. Uh -huh. We've all done, I'm not judging my colleagues here or judging others. We've all done it. My hands aren't clean here. We've all done it. You dress this up with the finest of theological language. You can quote the popes, you can quote the, <laughs> the code, you can quote Pope Francis. Uh, you can, but sure, you can get into a court and defend anything. At the end of the day, it'll still be somebody being untrue to themselves and no good will come of it, let me tell you. And children miss nothing. And somewhere at the back of their minds, they're registering that they're being taught to perform a lie. Yeah. Because their parents don't go to church. That image of the bear is so perfect. But what will it take for us to stop dancing? I, I think a disaster, probably. We, we don't seem, to, and here I come into another thing. I just come into this and go back to Kierkegaard again. I just come into another thing here. This is tradition gone wrong. Here we come into another thing is we just seem to be in an age, we never stop talking about freedom and we forget. Do you remember I quoted before that 19th century tawdry old ballad, The West's Awake? Oh, yes. That chainless wave and lovely land, freedom and nationhood demand. Be sure the great God never planned for slumbering slaves a home so grand. Freedom is frightening. Freedom is decision making. Freedom is where you have to inform yourself to your own satisfaction. Free, you don't just cut and paste from Wikipedia. Freedom is where you actually have to do the work. You must perform human acts. Go back to your St. Thomas. You know more about this than I do. Right? Uh, a human act. He was coming from Aristotle. The human act. I can't remember them all, but they were the conditions for mortal sin. You remember them? The human act had to, you had to have at least the minimum of knowledge. You had to have at least the minimum of freedom. You had to have at least the minimum of intention, the minimum of will. You, you, you mm -hmm. get the picture? Yeah. Okay. To performing human acts, not just drifting in a tradition to which we no longer belong and in which we no longer believe. We no longer respect the voices of the dead. But we don't have the courage to turn and say to their faces, in the mists of time, go, I reject you. We don't have the guts. And let me tell you, no good will come of that. Because at least a refusal is at least, you, you remember the two sons in the parable, I can never remember my citations. Our Lord used it as an example, ever the brilliant teacher, always telling stories. Um, where he said, one son, the father said to him, go down the vineyard, do something, help me in the vineyard. Your man said, oh, certainly, daddy, of course I will. I'll be there. You know me. I'll be there. And, and he doesn't show up. The second son, he says to him, you go down, come down to the vineyard and help me. And the second son says, no, I will not. No, I won't help you. And then later he thinks, what did I just say to daddy? How could I do that? How could I do that to my poor old daddy? 
I'll go down and help him. And Jesus said, which of those was the better son? The disciples said, the second guy, of course, the lippy guy, the cheeky guy, the, the, the guy with the attitude, the guy, the, the guy who isn't the diplomat. And he said, yes. You know the tree by its fruits. And, and, and at least if you're willing to say to God, no, if you're willing to wrestle with the angel like Jacob, right? If you're willing to get stuck in, if you're willing to turn your back on God, if you're willing to turn your back on the dead, if you're willing to turn your back on tradition, let me tell you, the Americans say as long as you turn up to work, anything can happen. Have you heard that? Yeah. You turn up to work, that's a great saying. Mm -hmm. You turn up to work, anything can happen. If you don't let go of that one ethical line, you turn up to work, right? If you don't let go of that one ethical principle. Show up. No matter what else, no matter what else goes, you show up for work. Okay. Now I'm telling you now, as long as you're willing to make free decisions, anything can happen. And somebody who says to God, no, I will not serve, is not far from God. Somebody who rebels against God is not far from God. He is wrestling with the angel. He's in the game. He's in the fight. But somebody who keeps, who, who moves in this grey marchland, who moves in this mist and fog of maybe, endlessly moves in the subjunctive which could be and should be and ought to be and would have been and might have been and for goodness sake, man, get back into the indicative. Be your words yea or nay. Say yes or no. If you don't believe in this, your child shouldn't be going to First Communion. And I say this to the priest as well. If you don't believe, take off your collar. That's a terrible thing to say. I know it's a terrible thing to say. God forgive me. He may not. It's an awful thing to say. But we have to, we have to get out. We have to get out of this this swamp we're in. We're in the, how would you put it? We're becalmed. You know the old sailing ships. They, they could spend weeks just sitting around if a, if a wind didn't come. It, it was deadly because all the time you were using your water and using your stores, and there you were sitting in the middle of in the, in the middle of the ocean and nothing happening. We have to get out here, Jared. We have we have we have to move. We have, we, we have to break out. We have to be free. And I'm telling you now, we have to break away from a dead tradition back into the living tradition. Back into the living tradition. Now here, I remind you of what our Lord said to the Pharisees. We, tend, we, we use the word Pharisee as a term of abuse. The Pharisees were the finest of people. They were outstanding people. Josephus tells us that the Pharisees were so respected by the people that the others, other powerful groups, like the Sadducees, had to go along with them. Even the priests had to kind of go along with them as to what happened in the temple, because the people thought so highly of the Pharisees. They were almost certain the antecedents to the rabbinate letter. Mm -hmm. The Pharisees were fantastic people. Why was our Lord so hard on them? He was so hard on them because they were fantastic. He was so hard on them because they were so close, and they wouldn't make the final step they made of the tradition something that they were stuck on it. Mm. They weren't even listening to, as, as Matthew and Mark tells us, the, the paradosis ton presbyteron, the, the teaching, the, the tradition, the teachings of the elders. They weren't really listening to them. And, and, and Jesus, you know, he would say to them, you know, you've found a, a hundred ways to fiddle the rules. You're just laying the rules on ordinary people and you're not lifting a finger to lift them off them. You found a hundred ways. And he said, he said to people, oh Lord, where are my citations? Um, yeah, you, Mark 7, Matthew, I wrote it down, Matthew 15, and then Matthew 23, Matthew 23, he says to them, watch the Pharisees, watch the Pharisees, he said, listen to what they tell you. Do what they tell you. But here, 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 do not do what they do for they do not practice what they preach. So he said, their doctrine is excellent. Now, we often miss that. That's why they were getting such a kicking, is their doctrine was superb. He almost certainly had acquaintance with them. He quite possibly came from yeah, circles that were, were quite well in with them, mm -hmm. or knew them. Their doctrine was excellent. They were so close. Yeah. And yet they, 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 they were just blind. And he calls them that. He, he, he calls them, what is he called? Blind guides. Matthew 50. Blind guides. And he says, sure, where the blind are leading the blind, everyone goes to ruin. Everyone goes over the edge of the cliff. But you can understand the human side of that, the, the fear that if you do move forward, 
that everything behind will just collapse. There we go. I accept that. So I where accept do you go? that. Even if the house is falling in, it's still your house. Huh. It's very frightening to keep going. Ratzinger tells the story of, uh, it's, it's a story told by Augustine. I haven't read it in the original, but I, uh, Ratzinger tells the story as, as he was then. I think, I don't, I don't think he was the Pope then. Uh, he, he says, um, Augustine has this story about, um, can't remember where it is, maybe the confession somewhere else, that the teaching of the church or the function of the church is this it's thankless job. Uh, it's this kind of endless reminding. It's kind of endless annoying. But he said the church is like, he said, imagine a physician coming to see a man and the man has a very peculiar illness. And the physician says to the man's son, no, I'm going to go and I'll come back in the morning. And all you have to do, he must not sleep. Your father must not sleep. That's the one thing you must do. And if you can keep him awake, the medicine will take effect. I'll come back in the morning and I will continue his treatment. But he must not sleep. So all night, the father comes to hate his son. He, he is weary, he is exhausted. He starts to drift off and the son keeps shaking him. No, father, wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up. And the father doesn't understand that the son is saving his life by continually waking him. And that is the thankless job of the church at her best. And I put it to you, Jared, that all of us, okay, and I'm, I'm throwing you in into the pot as well. I speak for you, which is very pleasant. Lovely to, to blame other people as well. Okay. I put it to you that we, ha we are afraid to wake people up. We're afraid of our people. We're afraid they'll stop paying us. It's mm -hmm. not that we're getting paid a fortune, but we're getting paid enough. We have, we have a decent life, because we don't have families. We're afraid they'll stop. But let's name this. We're afraid they'll be nasty to us at meetings. We're afraid they'll, be, they'll despise us. Mm -hmm. We're afraid they won't like us because we like them, for the most part. And we're afraid they'll turn against us. We're afraid of hurting them. Because uh, in many cases, their children have left the faith. They're adult children. And they're desperate to hold on to the affection of their children. And indeed, many believing parents are afraid of their children. For that reason. I believe that was crucial in those referenda. They're afraid of the disapproval of their children. Yeah. And, 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 and we have got... And, and look, I'm, I'm just as bad. I'm just as bad. Before the referendum on marriage, I was... I was sick to my stomach getting into the pulpit with fear. Firstly, because I, I, I had a very keen un, understanding, at least, of the fact that if I put a foot wrong here or offended people, I could lose the whole congregation. It was a very strange time. And secondly, going in because, because um, I was afraid. Because our time was over, historically speaking, for the moment. We'll have yeah. it again, simply because we last. <laughs> that, that's that's the, the one thing we do. <laughs> we last. But that's a long time. We won't see it. Well, you will. You'll see better times. I won't. I'm 57. I'm not going to see it. You'll see, you, you'll see better times. I was afraid. I didn't want silence afterwards. I didn't want my ministers of the Eucharist kind of half looking at me and nearly climbing over each other to get out of the sacristy quick enough after mass so they wouldn't have to meet my gaze. I was afraid. And even with abortion, I was afraid. Yeah. And the first time I preached on it, I probably was a bit too hard. I, w I was afraid, even though I passionately believed in what I was saying. And I'm no saint, but I just passionately believed in it. We are afraid to wake up our people. We're afraid to shake them, but to fall asleep is death. It's like falling asleep in the snow. The explorers will tell you about how easy it is to fall asleep in the snow. Yeah, you start to feel nice. You start to feel warm even. Because your body's shutting down. Yeah. You're not warm. So there's a huge danger. And I'm telling you now that the, the tradition demands that we wrestle with the tradition. Does this make any sense at all? Yeah, I guess, but... You, you must engage yeah. in it. You must engage in it. I'm, I, I'm not calling for heresy, but I'm also saying that not that we develop new doctrine so much as we develop doctrine that understands better the doctrine. We develop better ways of understanding the deposit of faith. Does that make sense? Do you think that like with regards to the personal journey of faith, that the difficulty and sufferings are common, it's being able to carry your own cross, but is what you're saying that the, the tradition needs that as well? Yeah. And the church needs that? The church is, in a, is, is constantly coming to a deeper and deeper, I think, appreciation 
of the riches of the deposit that have been given to it. The church has the entirety of the truth. The in, no, other, no other religion has. The entirety of the truth subsists within the church. The council affirmed that it, it is within the church. But the church itself is constantly coming to a new appreciation, a new awareness of the riches of that tradition. And in doing that, mistakes are made. Not at, not at the highest level, not at the sense of, of infallible teachings or anything like that, but, but you know, mistakes, mis uh, mistakes are made in, the, in ordinary course. The tradition must be engaged with, and we must be engaged with. You go to confessions, I mean, going to confessions as an adult and still confessing that you are cursing, telling lies and throwing stones at dogs is pathetic. You know, we both know as a confessor, I mean, the, nothing drives me cracked. It really stresses me, it really upsets me, it really depresses me. Then someone coming into confession and saying, well, I, I haven't been to confession in, in 10 years. And I'm, my God, I, that's great. Welcome back. Wow. You know, this is a big day. This is a great day, a day of days. You come back. And to tell you the truth, I haven't done much wrong, really. What sort of an idiot are you? Oh, it's a killer. Well, no, I haven't said that, but I... I I said something fair off. Well, what yet? Mm. Who am I talking to, Mother Teresa? Mother Teresa wouldn't have said that. She went to confession once a week. I can't go a day. I can't go a day. Jeepers, if, I, if I'm trying to, to, to get, the get the indulgence in November, I have to race from confessions. <laughs> All the way, get everything done as quick as I can. I'm so uncharitable. I'm so quick-tempered. Do you know what I'm getting at? I'm a selfish buggins. And I haven't improved with age, you know? Um, and, and, and you see, that's one of the great dangers of the, the priesthood, the spiritual life, is it becomes a comfortable bachelor life. Isn't that the danger? Uh-huh. It does. And the, yeah, I mean, you have to have a few comforts and you have to, you know, I don't know, have a few of the ordinary, ordinary, decent, good human pleasures, you know, a bit of food, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Bit of food and a bit of company. Goodness, those are lovely things. But at the same time, and here we come to it again, is, is as, as Fulton Sheen says, the priest is not his own. You know, so where, so where I hear priests saying, you know, I'm entitled to my own space, and I know what they're saying, and yeah, for their own mental health and their well-being, they need some space, but there's a danger there. Do you see the danger? There's a fin in the water. You can nearly hear the theme from Jaws. My space, my time. It's not your space and it's not your time, you dark. Right? You knelt in front of the bishop in a gesture that is ancient. Who does that? Mm. You knelt in front, you put your two hands together like a medieval knight. You put your two hands together like that, inside his hands, the hands of your liege lord. Right? In the 21st century. Yep. I did it in the 20th. Okay? <laughs> uh, the students I taught probably thought it was the 19th, maybe the 18th. <laughs> You put your hands within his and you, and you, you swore your life away. So, I, no, I'm sorry. You don't get to talk about my time. I know what you're talking about and you do need time. One of the biggest dangers to the priesthood, it's, it's, it's uh, a vocation can, can die. It's, and it's not death by scandal or death by... And that has happened. I mean, that has happened. Shapers, it has happened. Death by betrayal, all the rest of it. But betrayal can be soft and quiet. Betrayal, betrayal can come in little bits and dribs and drabs. You know, my life, my space, my well-being, my this, my that, my... Oh, here we go. This is my personal favourite. This is my personal favourite. This is where I really reach for my blood pressure tablets, okay? And take a double dose. My rights. I'm telling you, anytime you hear a man or woman going on, going on about their rights, outside of extreme situations, and I admit, there are occasions... There are some very unpleasant people in the world. There are occasions which will put an honest man or woman to the pin of their collar and then they have to, yes, they have to talk about their rights. You know, they just have to pull somebody up and, and, and say, no, you know, this won't do. But you should never talk about them too easily. You talk about your duties. And I'm speaking as a man who has so often failed in his duties and I have to live with my failures and look at them and try to improve. Okay? I'm, I'm, I'm in many ways a broken man. I look at them and I have to improve. But going on about your rights, what's it going to be next? You're going to go outside the bishop's house and in a sandwich board and, 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 and go on strike? I mean, come off it. You handed over your rights, you noggin. 
You handed over your rights. You put your hands in his to you and to your successors. In fact, he asks you the question, do you swear promise obedience to me? They say promise because it sounds nice. Okay, do you promise obedience? It's, it's, it's a cuddly swear. But it's still, you've handed it over. You gave your word to me and to my successors. You see the way they cover themselves? Mm-hmm. Yeah. One bishop is the same as another in succession. They have the succession from Christ. And you say, I do. Mm-hmm. And the bishop says, you remember what the bishop says to you? May Christ, who has begun the good work in you, bring it to his own fulfillment. Now I'm asking you, why are you stopping Christ from doing that in your life? And I'm not just, I'm not just going to keep hammering at the poor old priest either, although we deserve a hammer. But, but I'm asking this of all the baptised. Okay, oh, you can say, oh, I was baptised as, as a kid and I didn't know what was happening. Well, clear off so if you don't believe, and then maybe something will happen. If you turn up for work, anything can happen. If you make decisions, anything can happen. If you have integrity, anything can happen. But nothing will happen where you go on lying to yourself, whether you're a priest or religious or a lay person. There's nothing more pathetic. You know, it's like a priest getting obsessed with money. I mean, I like money, I like nice things, but you don't go on about money any more than you go on about your rights. If, if the parish needs money, you're going to have to talk to the people about money. There's no point being precious about that. Because we all know living saints who left the church falling in and then the poor devil who came after them got an awful name because he'd ask for a fortune of money to fix, to do the work that should have been done by the guy before him. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't trust that kind of sanctity. Sometimes you have to ask people for money. But you, you do it apologetically and you do it only as often as it has to be done. Mm-hmm. You know, these are your people. You, you're their servant. You are their unworthy servant. And believe me, I can say that with complete sincerity and no false modesty. I am the unworthy servant of the people of Athen Rye. And they would tell you that too. <laughs> That's what we signed up for. That was the deal. You show me where you signed up for having my own little bit of my own space, like some sort of parsimonious leprechaun. Okay, do you swear obedience? Well, I swear a little bit. I swear a little bit of obedience and a little bit of piety and a few minutes in front of the Blessed Sacrament and, and the occasional, I bless myself passing the church and I might wear the collar now and again on, on, on Sundays if it's fine weather. Come off it, for goodness sake. And this thing of, oh, I'm just like anyone else. The priest is just like anyone else. You're not just like anyone else, you fool. You're not like anyone else. You're a leader. Leaders are weird, you weirdo. <laughs> you strange person. You're a leader. All leaders are weird. The spiritual leader is the weirdest. He is the weird. He is the object of, of mingled respect and contempt and fear and love and a whole melange of things. If you're dealing with a real Catholic, if you're dealing with a real Catholic, and I'm not saying with a saint, but with a real Catholic, remember what I said, you know, a real believing scumbag. Okay, if you're dealing with a real Catholic, a real Catholic would manage in conversation with the priest to treat you with the most elaborate respect, to insult you to the core of your metaphysical being. Repeatedly. How does that go? I, I, I just, I simply couldn't reproduce it. Mm. I remember coming out of one wedding where I was surrounded by real Catholics and I nearly drove the car into a wall, I was so confused. I had been loved and kissed and adored like, like, like the parish priest in the Irish RM and insulted and ignored <laughs> and, and made fun of and, and you name it, all at the same time. Mm. It's the weirdest relationship and it's because you're weird. They're weird too, actually. It's because you're weird. Now, all human beings are weird, but you're openly and demonstrably weird because you have to, your job is to remind you remind them of Christ. You're a living icon of Jesus Christ. Isn't that what we say? Mm-hmm. A living icon. A living sacred representation. Yeah. You know, the Russians will touch the icons and bless themselves, as we would with holy water. Yeah. You're a living icon of Christ. You are weird. The priest is, meant, is the one who brings man to God. And to say the prophet is the one that brings God to man. I love Pope Francis. You have to be set apart to be able to do that. I love Pope Francis. I'm not saying that to suck up, okay? I love, I, I love Pope Francis. I, th- I think he's a great Pope. A lot of conservative friends of mine don't like him, but I like him. I think he's a great Pope. I was taught by the Jesuits in Rome. They were great teachers. 
he's, a, he's very comprehensible if you knew the Jesuits, if you were taught by the Jesuits in the Gregorian in those years. It was heavily Spanish Jesuits, to my memory, who kind of gave the flavour to the place at the time. Probably changed now. But I, he doesn't like his, the, the ring being kissed. You've noticed that. He, mm-hmm. he doesn't like those gestures. And I think, with great respect, I think he's wrong in that. Yeah. He is our sweet Christ on earth. Is that Catherine of Siena or Teresa of Avila? I can never remember my saints, any more than my citations. I think it's Catherine of Siena, our sweet Christ on earth. Wow. He is our sweet Christ on earth. If people want to get down and kiss his feet, he should let them. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, the Pope is the Pope, and, and who am I? I I'm, I'm just a, a fifth-rate parish priest. But having said that, I'm now going to give lip. I, I think he's mistaken in that. We see people are confusing the situation that he is Francis or he is Borgoglio and the Pope. You can't interchange that. Like, he is the Pope and that's what they're yeah. coming for. He belongs to us. He is not his own. He belongs to us. Whether he likes the ring being kissed or not, or his hands being kissed or his feet being kissed. When I was ordained, some of the older people kissed my hands and they were perfectly right to do so. It had nothing to do with me and it certainly didn't make me feel any bigger. Mm-hmm. I had at least enough theology and faith to know that, that my hands weren't kissed an hour beforehand. <laughs> there was a clear reason for that. Yeah. I belonged to them. I was now a servus dei, a slave of God. I had been marked and branded and wore. I know it's not literally that. It's, in fact, originally, I think, a neckcloth. But I wore the collar. I had, as they said, taken the collar. Sheen was right. Sheen was, Sheen was very deceptive. You know, he's a handsome, charming man, a brilliant teacher, a brilliant communicator. And we can tend to assume that somebody like that is superficial or just all technique. But Sheen's books, I mean, I have to read his books with a pencil. Sheen's books are, are theologically rich. Oh, extraordinary. That book, The Priest Is Not His Own, that, that's meaty. Mm-hmm. And it, it made a big impression on me, a big impression on me uh, when I read it. And, and, and he's right. You don't, you don't belong to yourself. You don't belong to yourself. No, that, that's not to say you don't need a holiday. It's not to say you don't need a break. But you take a holiday to refresh yourself so that you're of more use to your people. You settle for that. And how could you settle for that without wrecking any fragile sense of yourself at all? It's because you believe that God holds your identity. God, ho- you don't decide your own identity. God calls you a priest. God calls you baptized. God calls you his own, the apple of his eye, his treasure. God holds your identity for you. And you don't have to worry about it. You have money in the bank. You can afford this. You can afford to be profligate with your personal life, with your time, with the time that might otherwise be legitimately devoted to yourself. You can afford to do this because it is all stored up for you and will be paid back, pressed down, a full measure, pressed down and flowing over. So you can afford to be restless. You can afford to be the leader. And if you're baptised, you still have the leadership. It's a different form of leadership, but you are baptised as Christ was baptised, priest, prophet and king. You remember the words? Yep. So may you live as a member of his body, sharing everlasting life. Amen. In the rite of baptism. You are called out and you agreed to stand out. And this is no good. This falling asleep in the tradition, that's not what the tradition is for. The tradition is a living tradition. The dead are talking to you because it's your business to do what they would do if they were there, knowing what they now know. Because they are, as they say in the Geltacht, Erschlina Firna. In the Geltacht, they don't say people are Marif, they're dead. They say they're Erschlina Firna, they're on the path of truth. I was corrected in a sermon for that. The local electrician said it to me after, after, after the funeral. Now he, he said, that was fine, Father, he said, but we don't say that. We don't, we don't refer to the dead person as Andina Marav. Marav means dead. Yeah. No, he said, we don't, you don't say that. Erschlina Firna. August Mwidna Erschlina Brega. And also on the path of the lie. There's a sense of speed, There's pure Paul. Paul could have written that. Paul could have written that. I mean, that's, that is digested masticated, thoroughly digested faith. Well chewed, <laughs> okay? That's a faith that's lived and understood. And they, there's this gorgeous, there's this gorgeous hymn in Irish, uh, on Tash Irie. It used to, oh, I heard it sung by, he died, he died there, was it last year, George John Mokonomera, a wonderful Shannon singer, singer from Kilkiron, where I was a curate years and years ago. And um, it, it is these wonderful lines, um, Mamas litter on Holm, ni boil idanan. 
If the flesh is insulted, as I understand it, if the flesh is insulted, what danger to the soul? Isn't that a marvellous uh, irresponsibility, as it were? It's a marvellous uh, sportsman-like, gentlemanly contempt of the danger in front of you. There's the hero that Kierkegaard is talking about, facing the depths. There's the hero with the hero light shining on his brow, as it says in, in the Cuchulain sagas. There's the hero. There's the hero with the toss of his head. The toss of his head. <laughs> It'll be sport for us. It'll pass the day for us. Do you see where I'm going? I love stories, some military stories. I was always fond of, of military history. But I remember being told that some, some British officers would walk in in front of their men into almost certain death when they were sent over the top. They put away their pistol into their holster and they take out their walking stick. And a young man in those days carried a stick as an item of fashion. They take out their walking stick and they twirl it. And they'd walk out in front of their men as if they were going for a stroll. Wow. They'd say, come on, lads. Come on, lads. We take the air. <laughs> and they walk out to their certain death because the, the Germans would, of course, instantly target the officer, yeah. which is what you would do. You target the leaders straight away to their certain death. Do you call that courage? I do call it courage if they were afraid. If they weren't afraid, I just call it stupidity. <laughs> but I do call it courage if they were afraid, because only the, only the fearful can be a hero. You must understand the void. You must look into the depths, into the ravine, and know what you're looking at. You can't look into the depths and say, hello, cuddly no nothingness. <laughs> nothingness isn't cuddling. Mm. The void isn't cuddling. The hero is seen before the dragon. If there's no dragon, how do we know he's a hero? Mm. If the chasm isn't there, how do we know we're dealing with the hero? And what have the poet or orator to sing of if not arms and the man? What has the poet or orator to sing of if there's no hero? What are the Gospels? The Gospels would be pointless. What are the Gospels doing? Imagine the blind harpists of Gaelic, of Gaelic tradition. Imagine old Carolum. Imagine the old harpists. Imagine them with their sightless eyes singing of the mighty deeds of Christ the mighty deeds of God among men. As indeed we have in the Psalms, where the Hebrew poets revel in the mighty deeds of God. What things he has done. The Magnificat is incredible, this tremendous praise form. He is, I love it. Uh, what is it? Uh, in in Brachiosu, he's put forth his arm in strength and scattered the proud heart of it. You can, imagine the, you can imagine the court poet with the harp at the fireside and his sightless eyes sing, away. singing of the mighty deeds of the hero. For he has dashed the enemy against the rocks. He has, he has raised up Zion. He has defended the weak. What magnificent things. What splendid things. So what does this mean now for the priest? For the priest? Uh -huh. The priest is called to be a hero. As Christ is. And I don't wish it on. That, that is probably um, not something that was fully explained to him before he was ordained. But then there was a fair bit that wasn't fully explained before we were ordained. <laughs> so we'll get on to that another day. <laughs> providing formation, training for heroes. Providing formation for, for the kind of sea captains to command these ships of faith. Mm -hmm. and articulation and apologetics on this treacherous sea of modernity, providing, providing the kind of heroes and providing the poets and the orators to sing of the hero. Where, how are we going to do this without a bardic school, without a, a school of navigation, without... Does this make sense? Mm -hmm. What did I talk about at the end of the last talk? I, I said, we need a school. I who can never get an essay finished unless it's at the last minute, <laughs> right? I say we need... We need a school. And I'm not, look, you can come back at me, people who love Maynooth, come back at me and say, you're dissing Maynooth, you're dissing this, you're dissing that. I'm doing a degree at the moment at the Priory Institute and they know a lot more than I do. I'm not dissing anybody. I'm just saying that we don't have what I'm talking about. Maybe one of them can do it. Maybe they should all get together and do it. I don't know. But we need, to, and it needs to be online so we can catch that riptide in the sea of modernity, that current. You know, apparently there are currents off the west coast of Ireland that can get you to Spain in two days. The old fishermen and smugglers used to know them. Apparently. A friend of mine did it. Did it in little, little over two days. Yeah, the old smugglers. That's how they used to get the priests out as well. Out the candidates for the priesthood. To 
be trained in Spain. Was that? Yeah, and they'd bring back brandy. <laughs> yeah, they'd bring back brandy into the coves on the west coast to sell it. And they, they used to say the O'Connells made their money that way, down in Kerry, smuggling brandy. Whether it's true or not, I don't know. Okay, makes it good story. Well, the Italians say, uh, "What is it? Mai non è vero e ben trovato." Even even if it's not true, <laughs> it's well found. It's well told. So here I come back to what? What are we? What will we sing of if not if not the the, the hero? And the hero decides. The hero is a man or woman of decision. They decide, even if the decision is the wrong one. You must make decisions. We're decision-making animals. Homo sapiens. Mm-hmm. Eh? That is the rational expression of our soul. You must make decisions. Now, I'm, te- I'm telling you now that this, uh, this is having a terrible effect on the church. I, I'm not getting at anyone, okay, because I know somebody is going to come back at me and say, oh, you're bashing bishops and anything. I worked for a fantastic bishop for 11 years, Michael Neary. Fantastic bishop in Tube. I would say that anywhere I go, a first class and fantastic bishop. This is bigger than any individual bishop, and the bishops themselves will tell you this. None of us are quite sure how this will look, but it will have to be done. And we don't have endless time. We really do need to get our proverbials in gear. What are you proposing that is different from the criticism that that comes towards the church saying, oh, we need to get rid of all those structures and get rid of all those old paths? You're not saying that, but what are you saying? Well, I'm saying that some of the structures may no longer be entirely fit for purpose as they are. That's not heresy. The diocesan structure is indispensable because the diocese is defined by canon law as a group of the faithful gathered around a bishop. The bishops are indispensable as part of the hierarchical constitution of the church. That can't be tampered with and shouldn't be. The bishops are a treasure because they are a living link between us and Christ. The priesthood comes through them. I'm throwing out a question as to whether even, in the way we're looking at it now, whether even uh, universities or institutes in concrete places are going to be any good anymore. People are going to be able to do degrees on the hoof while they're working. I think people being trained for the priesthood are probably, they've been talking about this since the 70s, they're probably better off out in parishes and doing their degree at the same time. I don't know. I simply don't know. But I I, I know what we're at isn't working. And I think we're still in, as I said at the beginning, the rags of our old finery. And it was finery, and I'm not despising it. Mm -hmm. But it was of its time. The faith is eternal. But each time must find a way to live the faith. It must find its own way to live the faith. Apart from those things that can't be changed, the mass, all the rest of it. Uh, We're dying from lack of personal responsibility. Priests need to decide to continue in the priesthood. I heard one wealthy Catholic say privately, now, it was a little bit uncharitable, but you could see his point because he was so fed up, that if he could think of a way of spending his spare money, he would seriously consider putting together a fund which would offer a comfortable retirement to any jaded and disillusioned non-believing priest who was willing to clear off and that he would pay them to go. Jeepers. And that's what he saw? Well, he saw it. He certainly saw a bit of it. He seemed to be saying he saw a fair bit. (laughs) I was a teacher as well. That's so disappointing. I was a teacher as well. It's a fantastic profession. It's full of fantastic people, but it happens in the teaching profession too. It can happen in any profession, but it is absolutely deadly in the priesthood Mm. for the church. It is deadly. Because you have souls yeah. with you. I'm not asking you to be a perfect priest. There's only, there's one perfect priest. Grace builds on nature. Mm-hmm. And do you remember I was saying you need to be broken for grace to enter in. You need the wound, all the rest of it. But you can't just sit back on that. The hero keeps going. You know, you had the story of Odysseus and Ollie in the Iliad, or in the Odyssey, sorry. The, the, the Greek hero of Homer. The island of the Lotus Eaters where... You know, he, he has to try to get his men off the island because they'll sit there forever eating lotus, eating this strange fruit that induces, I think, forgetfulness or something. This is the danger of lotus eating, falling asleep in the snow, falling asleep in the tradition, the dancing bear. If we just keep doing the same things, somehow it will come right. No, you'll spend the remaining money we have. You'll wear out your energy doing things, uh, swimming against the tide, when we need to relearn how to swim and navigate. The tide is there. We have to use it. Mm-hmm. I know this is easy to say, but in fairness to me, okay, I have innumerable faults, but I'm paying my dues like every other priest, okay? I'm 57. I've been nearly 30 years a priest, and those years will not come back. Okay, in fairness, I give them.
I hope to give the rest. Um, I've made mistakes, I've had some successes, whatever. I certainly feel, I've no doubt, I, I certainly feel I've never regretted becoming a priest, although I, I thought of leaving it a few times, because like Peter, I'm a coward. It was going badly. That's real, yeah, that's yeah, real. Yeah, yeah, there was a deserter brought in front of Frederick the Great. Frederick the Great was a great cynic, you know, the famous general. He was a great cynic. There was a, a deserter brought in front of him. Sometimes you're safer with a cynic, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Frederick, they were going to shoot him. And Frederick said, why did you leave me? He said to the deserter. And the deserter said very honestly back to him, he was a country lad, Truthfully, Your Majesty, he said, it's going very badly for you. <laughs> Frederick liked him. And he said back to him, my friend, he said, stay with me another day. And if it goes as badly, we'll desert together in the morning. <laughs> you know, I, th I, I, I thought of going because I'm a coward, because I'm afraid, because it was bad. Like, it was, we've had some bad times. But I never regretted becoming a priest. A glorious life. And I hope to God, you know, I, a believer will never regret having become a believer. What a glorious life is to follow Jesus Christ, to pass on the faith in your family, to bring up, to give life to kids, to bring up kids, to have a career, to run the world. My goodness, what lives we have. Mm. This is the stuff of heroism, the stuff of legend, the stuff of epic. And we despise it. Maybe, I, I'm sceptical of this thing, oh, oh, after the lockdown it'll be all different. But maybe some things will be different. Maybe if nothing else we've... We've just, the whole industrial world has had to take some out time and to realise that there is life beyond the rat race, beyond, you know. So now we can go back to the rat race and make of it something better. Mm -hmm. You know, because with all this leisure that's coming, with the coming of artificial intelligence, this is stuff we'll have to talk about down the line, like all this stuff that's coming on board. You're looking at a lot of leisure for human beings down the line. And this is a big question, is how are we going to spend our leisure? And I mean, it's a tremendous, Very true. it's a tremendous vista. You know, can you imagine the possibilities for learning, for self-improvement, for the arts, for culture, for sport, for agri, all this stuff, my goodness. But remember that human propensity to mess it up, to make a pig's breakfast of the whole thing out of a banquet. Mm. So just keep, keep that kink that we have in us in, our, in, in, in your mind. I'm telling you, this is affecting the churches like leprosy is this lack of responsibility. Believers not making decisions. Are you, are you in or out? You say back to me, that's simplistic. You're, you're talking like a sportsman or, or something like that about the faith and all the rest of it. No, no, come on. Sometimes you just have to do this. I'm sorry. You know, you're hiding in the undergrowth of, mysti of, of, of mystical hogwash. That's not mysticism. Real mystics don't go on like that. Real mystics actually get up and go to, go, they go to mass. Okay, in a concrete place. Teresa of Avila had to use a prayer book for 20 years and put up with it because she couldn't concentrate on her prayers. One of the greatest mystics in the history of the church and a doctor of the church. This is the Teresa, yeah? yep. the lady, the woman, <laughs> and she, she needed a prayer book. Real mystics don't go on like that. Real mystics are actually very practical. So don't start that rubbish with me. Oh, no. well, what does Catholic mean after all? I mean, I mean, you can be culturally Catholic. What is a cultural Catholic? What is it? Is there a Catholic cuisine? Do you dine in Catholic restaurants? <laughs> Do you affect Catholic dress? Do you speak Catholic? Parlez-vous Catholic? <laughs> I, for God's sake, how many people speak Latin? There's hardly a priest in the country has a, a, can string a few words of Latin together. Mm. Get away out of that. As the Americans say, get out of here. Stop this nonsense. Pin this down. We are people of the incarnation. If God came into our, our space and our time and got up in the morning and went to bed in the evening and, and, and did work and kept his word and did all the things that you do in a life, we can get on with this. Are you in or out? If you make a decision, everything is possible. If it's a considered decision. I'm not asking you to be foolish. If it's a considered decision. If you need more time, fine. But say that, I'm in a decision mode and I'm, I need more time. And stop receiving communion if you don't believe. Keep going to Mass and stop receiving communion. And kick some spiritual ass here. No, I'm not being superficial, but I mean, get stuck in here and, and wrestle with yourself. And don't trust yourself. You can love yourself and not trust yourself. Get stuck in. Stop going to communion. Stop this going to communion because everyone else is going. You're committing sacrilege. Okay, I say to the priest too, we should be going to confession more. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure I've done it. I'll go out onto the altar having had a row with a parishioner or something and thinking the most gothic thoughts about the parishioner. 
<laughs> okay, and I'll go out on the altar and commit sacrilege, possibly. You know what I'm getting at? To the extent now that when I'm saying Mass, I've got into the habit of always whispering a quick, cowardly act of contrition <laughs> under my breath <laughs> before, I, before I communicate, before I say the words of consecration. Do you know the, the, the old Irish monks used to call the words of consecration the oratio periculosa, the dangerous saying. It was Ooh. dangerous to the priest to say those words mm. if you were not in a state of grace. I come up, we, no, we need to get real here. Mm -hmm. Okay, stop going to communion if you don't believe. Keep coming to Mass, but stop coming to communion. A wholesome discipline, for goodness sake, can we have some good Irish common sense here? Can we just get down to the basic, solid peasant ancestry most of us come from? Apologies to the gentry out there. Okay, you'll have to look after yourselves. I don't know what you need. <laughs> Can we just have some good sense? You go to communion when you're ready to go to communion. Go to confession. Don't take absolution from the priest if you're not sorry for your sins. Go in and tell him you're not sorry and you've begun the conversation. And go back to him. And keep going back until, un, until you're ready for absolution. Do you have something to say? Yeah, I, I, I don't you have something to say. I haven't been to confession for 10 years, but I did nothing wrong. God, you must be so boring. <laughs> How did you do nothing wrong for 10 years? And I'm sorry for going on about it, and I don't mean to offend anyone, but this is, that's an oratio periculosa, let me tell you. You say that in confession, that's not a small matter. That's very dangerous stuff to be going on with. There's a conspiracy of silence here. It's not sinister, it's all good people. I hope I'm a good person, basically. You know, we're, we, we mean well. God help the world. We do mean well. God help the church. We mean well. But we're not making decisions and we're decision-making animals. I leave you with the words of Kierkegaard. I leave you again. I, I want to tell everyone listening here, you are weirdos. You are strange, odd, asocial, weird little people, flaky little people. And the priest is the weirdest of all. And it is his mission in life to remind you of your weirdness and you'll hate him for doing it. You'll hate him for wakening you up. You'll hate him for keeping at you. Don't fall asleep in the snow. Don't go to sleep. We have to go on a few more steps. We have to keep going. You're not a dog or a cat or a stone. You are absolutely unique. You are terra incognita inside. Your soul has ravines, forests where no man has ever gone. Mountains that have never been climbed. Now you must get in touch with that again. You must get in touch with that and you must get the courage to make decisions because the clock is ticking and your life is passing. And the one thing you must avoid is mediocrity. We cannot be lukewarm. As Revelation tells us, hot or cold. And remember, it's inspired scriptures, that's God speaking. Hot or cold, for if you lukewarm, I will spit you out. Get on with it. Make a decision in good faith, in good conscience, and then we'll see what happens. But stop pretending you're like everyone around you. Stop going on about just wanting to be ordinary. Stop going, you're not ordinary. You are an aristocrat by calling as Christ was ordained priest, prophet, and king. So were you anointed. You are called to do amazing things, and the priest is called to lead those who do amazing things. This is tremendous. I leave you again with the words of our melancholy Dane, our discontented Dane. How empty then and comfortless life would be, but therefore it is not thus. But as God created man and woman, so too he fashioned the hero and the poet or orator. You are the hero, the poet and the orator. Sing of him and they will sing of you at the campfires of the future. St. Brendan, pray for us. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And with that, we're going to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us. And if you enjoy this episode, please feel free to share with your friends and family. Please hit the like and subscribe button. Please leave a comment of what you thought and maybe what you'd like to hear even, which will allow this to grow. But nothing grows without God's prayer. So we ask you to pray for us and pray for the Immaculata Productions. God bless you and we'll see you next time on The Brendan Option. <laughs>